So I want to talk about the, the complicated relationship that exists between uh, churches, the 4th of July, uh, patriotism, nationalism, and all of that, and try and flesh out what is the call of the church? What is the responsibility of the church? And how do we handle that in a manner that is healthy and, uh, and good? Um, so first of all, I just want to kind of, before, we, before I start giving some of my ideas and thoughts, what are some of the experiences that you've had of that, uh, that are either good, icky, positive, not positive, or just something you've observed uh, about that, that mixture of 4th of July and patriotism in the church? I remember being um, initially, my first time I was, I was really bothered by this was uh, in college. I went to a, um, uh, I was in our, my college's choir and we went to a local church. Um, and this was 2006, so we were, you know, in, in, in a, you know, I guess we still are uh, in wars in the Middle East. Sure. And um, this was one of those churches that has the American flag on the stage, as well as the Christian flag on the other side. Sure. And there was a point before the sermon where, you know, the, the, the pastor had, you know, the a couple moms stand up who were mothers of soldiers sure. who had uh, recently been shipped over. And the whole prayer and moment was instead of being centered around, you know, uh, Christ and around the message of the gospel and what our responsibility was as, you know, missionaries of the gospel it was all about, you know, God protect these boys for, you know, fighting for America. Mm. And it was very, for lack of a better word, patriotic. Sure. Um, but not at all focused on Christ and the idea of like that these people in this other country are also, you know, souls in need of, you know. Right you know, the love of God. It's just like, you know, you know, give this man strength to be, you know, the, the warrior of America. Right. Kind of stuff. And that just, I remember sitting there and it just really kind of breaking me a little yep. as far as, you know, my relationship to the church and the church's relationship to the state. Yeah. Thank you. Anybody else? Well, I definitely you know, the church I grew up in was one, like Andrew said, that had the uh, the American flag at one side of the chancel and uh, a Christian flag at the other side. Um, and of course, you know, if it was Memorial Day or 4th of July, then the, the music we sang, the hymns we sang were, um, you know, either you know patriotic you know my country tis of thee or 
semi-militaristic, you know? Um, but uh, there's this one hymn, Shannon will have to remind me of the words, but uh, the one that's to the tune by Sibelius, I think. Yeah, so, but it basically is like, this is my country, and it starts describing the, you know, you know, all the goodness of the country, but then it says, you know, but there are other countries um, that uh, that God is, you know, basically it, it goes through and it kind of starts out saying, this is my country, but it, but then it says, you know, but, you know, this is my song. That, that other countries are, um, are God's creation too. And so it kind of recognizes the, um, the kind of, uh, the, the perspective and makes you shift your perspective. Um, right. It kind of reminds me of what's the, uh, you know, the Disney song, you know, underneath the same star, <laughs> you know? Mm. Uh, so, cause it kind of, does that word right right (laughs) awesome well i'm glad that they acknowledged at least uh the other countries we didn't say that when i was growing up this is a song i discovered that was like an antidote to those oh my bad i missed that piece okay yeah chris and chris sanchez mentioned that uh they would do the pledge of allegiance Anybody else have experience? I remember, Tana, you and I, we visited your mom's church one Fourth of July weekend. And I forget exactly what it was, but like, oh. They were waving the flags. Yeah, and didn't like a whole parade of little kids with American flags walk down and march around the Yep. Yep, they had, uh, they were marching and they were waving their American flags and they came in and marched around the sanctuary, which just struck me as creepy. Yeah, it was creepy. It was very like child soldier, like, you know, it was, it was weird, but they had, and they had American flags at the front and I don't even remember any other flag being there, but um, it's a very, very patriotic church. And, um, I don't remember it being that way when we were there when we first got married, Don, but maybe we just didn't notice it as much at the time because our beliefs were kind of different. But um, that struck me. I remember that day, it striking me as like, why are we, this, this, these two shouldn't be mixing. Why are we doing that here? It just, I couldn't articulate why, but it just felt icky. Sure. Anybody else? I remember we used to also, growing up in the church I grew up in, we would we also had the American flag and the Christian flag in the front. Um, and we would sing Onward Christian Soldiers on, uh, on the 4th of July. Um, that was like the big day for that, that song. Anybody else? 
Dan, I know you kind of jumped in a little late. So the question was, what was your experience with, uh, with 4th of July type celebrations at church uh, growing up? So let me ask you this question now. What is wrong with that? Like, so people have expressed in some level that it made them uncomfortable. It made, uh, it felt wrong. Uh, Andrew, I think you gave a little bit more idea of why you felt it was wrong because it missed out on the other people in the world and such. But, but what is, what is wrong with this idea of mixing uh, the celebration of America with church. I'm leaving because David and I were in the same room, and it when I when I unmuted, it went beep 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 beep. beep. Um, so. I, I don't know what I, I was going to answer the last question. So my, because my experience is a little bit different. And so yeah. it kind of might speak to the next question also, but it also might push back on it a little. That's fine. So, um, I, um, went to a large church before this. And I actually sang on stage, you know, for all the masses, the star spangled banner on the 4th of July weekend in the past. Um, but because of the church's focus on um, talking about current events or what, what, what was going on in the culture currently and how then they would fit that into their narrative of the Bible. Right which I think is uh, similar but different to what we do at death. So I'm not going to, I could talk about that for a really long time, but, um, but um, it didn't strike me as wrong or unusual that we would talk about patriotism on the weekend of the 4th of July while we were talking about church because right. Every weekend at church, we might say like, you know, like not only why, why is the Bible relevant in your life, mm -hmm. which is valid, right? Why is the Bible relevant in my life? But how does, you know, your current situation and your life as a American living in 2011 or whatever year it is, you know, how, how is that relevant 20, 20. to what? I'm not talking about now. I'm talking about when I sang, but thanks, son. Thanks. Let me, let me write that down. Um, <laughs> um, but like, why, why, why is the, now, now this Bible teaching that we're going to talk about, you know, this scripture that we're going to bring forward, how is that correlated to, um, to this weekend where we're celebrating independence? So, um, so it didn't ever strike me as really wrong per se you know um but uh, i mean there were plenty of other things that struck me wrong <laughs> and event and i do think that there's uh, that seeing that weekend's service through the lens of somebody who experienced that church week in and week out is way different than looking at it from the outside 
Sure, of course. And I do think that how I feel about it now um, might be different from how I feel felt about it then, but really in the in light of what is presented at that church I went to before on a week to week basis, it seemed completely normal and in line with what we were doing. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I I want to you know one of the questions I was going to ask as a follow up to the question of what's wrong with it is is it always wrong like is there room for this right and and what is the room for this and how do we how can we view this and say that it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, a problem to express some gratitude for uh the the experience of of being an american so Tana, did you have something? Yeah, I think um, I think what concerns me is, um, for example, saying the Pledge of Allegiance in church. Mm-hmm. Um, saying the Pledge of Allegiance to a flag when you're in a house of God. Um, that feels very pointed as to where you are putting your allegiance, right? Like. Um, so which is higher, God or America? And that's, that's where a lot of the patriotism mixed at church stuff, um, really, really concerns me because then I, uh, I question, uh, well, like I said, where the true allegiance, um, is. And I think what we see in, um, scripture time and time again is standing up against empire and when you're inviting empire into the church um that's a very very uh problematic situation yeah so tana you know that that's why we inserted under god in the pledge of allegiance (laughs) (laughs) to to erase any problem that we have there Um, sure yeah that erases the problem (laughs) But I, w- I was going to say, and Tana beat me to it, you know, that I was going to give the, the dustiest answer possible, which would be it's equating the church with empire rather than um, the church as opposing empire. But I think what's, uh, what's interesting about that, especially 4th of July wise, is that, you know, yes, the 4th of July was actually opposing empire. <laughs> Um, the British Empire, you know, Um, and that now, um, you know, I think it's very interesting that, you know, in America, we have both kind of this ultra nationalistic, patriotic uh, idea. um, And also that, you know, at the same time, Christians saying that, you know, the government is oppressing them, you know, so it's, it's like Christianity or certain parts of Christianity do have this, uh, this idea that they are fighting empire, but the government can both be the empire that's trying to oppress true Christianity and something that um, they are proud to be part of because they think that, you know, the true Americans <laughs> Um, you know, are these kind of nationalistic, patriotic things and not the ones that are, um, you know, 
trampling on religious rights, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. David, did you have something? I was just going to say that prompted a thought for me, and obviously I recognize the irony of standing in front of, or sitting in front of my U.S. Navy and American flag in the background, but. I don't um, think there's irony in that. I think, you know, our topic being, you know, the convergence of church and state and how those should be separated. I, I think, you know, the, the interesting thing to me is, um, or, or maybe it's the thing that, that perplexes me is that, you know, what Wade was saying is, or at least what I heard him say, <laughs> I'm qualifying it, but, um, that, you know, we had our founding was in, you know, in fight against empire. And then we became the empire that, that we were waging against. I wonder like what, I mean, not that this would happen, but let's say dust is immensely successful and then we become the empire. Not, not that this will happen, but I mean, I, I know that sounds absurd, but, but I think, you know, it, it seems like there's a cyclical nature to these uh, things. And, you know, what is our responsibility and how do we, um, you know, how do we, I don't know, fight against that or establish tenants that, you know, will not lead to that becoming the story of, you know, of the anti-movement. I, I, I'm not sure that's probably not a fully thought out idea. But. Well, I think uh, Paulo Freire kind of talks about the, the language of the oppressed and how, you know, we need to, the danger becomes that the oppressed then become the oppressor. Um, and so uh, I think that there is some of that. Yeah, Tally. Um, I, I, I think I might've been thinking something similar to David at the same time, which rarely happens. Um, <laughs> but I, I was thinking when, when Wade was talking also like, you know, he, cause he was trying to give, or he wasn't trying to give, it just happened. I think that he was giving the dustiest answer. And I think about, um, you know, we use the term empire and, and right now that would be ascribed to our government. Mm -hmm. Is there room for government to behave in such a way that it can't be labeled empire any longer because it's not um anything that we need to fight against like at, at what point is it i mean you know is it possible for there to be a government that serves its people so well that it it it, it wouldn't we wouldn't have any need to come up against it we wouldn't have any need for it to to be like it wouldn't be empire anymore empire would be something else i mean it's hard to believe that there's never going to be um a group of people that take advantage of their stature. Right. But maybe it wouldn't be our national government. Sure. That's fun to think of. That's exciting, right? So let me real quick, Wade, before you jump in, Tessa, uh, welcome. Uh, and just, you know, our conversation right now, what we're doing, and Tessa and guest, uh, who I'm guessing is not named Tessa as well. Um, uh, what we're talking about is what what has been our experience of, the 4th of July and church and is it always necessarily bad? Is it all, it, can it be healthy? Can, and what is the critique we have of that? And so 
just to kind of catch you guys up so you're not wondering what is what we're talking about but um so Thanks. so welcome thank you yep and doc said you can't have peace with a weapon in your hand i i think that's a really important statement so wait go for it man uh well when david was asking well what's to prevent uh a group from going from opposing empire to becoming empire and mm -hmm. it just you know, it made me think of all of the times in the Bible where the Jews are saying, remember, you were slaves in Egypt, you know? And so just again and again, a reminder, you know, so the, um, you know, so Passover fear, remember when you were slaves in Egypt. And right. so always reminding them, um, and, and especially when it's talking about others. So it's just like, you know, when they talk about the alien amongst you, they say, well, remember when you were the alien amongst them. So that's kind of what I see, David, is kind of what helps inoculate you from becoming empire is to remember um, always. Um, Where you came from. Right. Yeah, so let me, let me ask you this. Um, how easy is it for us and and what is the value of the church critiquing empire right critiquing the the danger of uh exclusion the danger of uh uh letting people left out, marginalizing people, uh, canceling people that happens in empire, right? Because empire needs a certain status, a certain group of people in order to be quote unquote successful or remain in power. And the church represents something that is insistent upon uh, removing the margins, uh, addressing and caring for people in the margins. Um, should be though is not unfortunately about inclusion and making sure that everyone is welcome to the table um, and that everyone has access um, and and this becomes a very important piece that when we then drape the cross in an American flag we are sending a message that kind of is 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 mixing that that picture right and and here's where i find it personally complicated i'm happy that i'm a, i'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, uh, i am happy that i am an american um i i have moments where i'm really disappointed with decisions we make and i'm really disappointed with altercations and conflicts that we create around the world and some of our exceptionalism that exists and our inability to genuinely critique our behavior and our privilege. That bothers me. But overall, I'm grateful that I was born here. I'm grateful that I'm American. So I don't, I don't have a problem with the flag. What I have a problem with is confusing the uh, characteristics and the history of America with the idealism that goes along with a healthy and beautiful theology, right? That's where I struggle, that I can't conflate the, the history of America with godliness because we haven't been godly. In fact, just looking at the 4th of July is a clear indication, right? Um, the 4th of July is not 
the independence of all Americans. It's the independence of white Americans. Um, we have Juneteenth because uh, not all of America was free on July 4th, 1776. And Juneteenth doesn't come until way after that, right? The final emancipation in Texas doesn't even come until many, many, you know, a couple, several generations. So for me, I think it's, it's where I find it to be complicated is that it becomes very whitewashed as well, right? That it, it becomes uh, not only do we have American exceptionalism brought into the church, but then we also have only white history brought into the church. And I think that that, that is another danger that is added. Any thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, if you don't mind my addressing this. No, um, go, Andrew. Uh, three things. One of them goes back to what we were talking about before, uh, about how, you know, we became empire after being the rebels, except we never really were the rebels. We just fought for the free, we fought for the ability of other powerful white men, landowners to become empire mm -hmm. and to make their own empire. And the problem, and to, and then we also talked about how do we prevent ourselves from becoming that? And right. I think that if for the church to remain true to itself and also to reject empires to do the same thing, which is for the church to become the margins and take the people that are on the margins, the people who are the most oppressed, the most neglected and centralize them in the church. Instead of just bringing them into the church, but keeping them on the wings, we say, you are the middle of the church. You are the mm -hmm. thing we are going to focus all of our attention to. And the moment that you become or you find yourselves, you know, less on the margins, you join us into finding those people who are the most, you know, uh, in need of, of love. Right. And then so there's a constant you know, shift in perspective towards who needs our help the most instead of how can we, you know, build up just the church and our power and our authority on earth. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Anybody else? And just, you know, cute babies distract me. So <laughs> um, anybody else have any thoughts on this? So how many of you have heard the, the wonderful quote from scripture, um, from Romans that says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And this is a often quoted, uh, in fact, actually part of uh, the current administration has actually even quoted this to kind of demand in some way that uh, people support the administration, right? So, so what impact does that type of, like, first of all, let's talk about that. So this is in a letter written to the Romans by Paul. So Paul is a Jewish man who holds dual citizenship. 
uh, both with Israel as well as with Rome. He is writing a letter to the churches in Rome to discuss his plans for traveling around the world as was known then, uh, sharing the good news, so to speak. And he's addressing this to the churches in Rome. When we understand it in context, now remember, Israel is oppressed by Rome. They're not living as a free nation next to Rome. Rome controls them. Rome just uh, lynched, as we talked about the other week, just lynched Jesus, basically. Uh, and, uh, and so here is Paul now saying, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. What could Paul possibly be saying there? Any thoughts? I definitely have some thoughts about Pauline and Chris knows them, but I don't know if this is, this is the time to, to discuss that. Well, well, first of all, I have some thoughts about Paul as well, but um, Andrew, like how could you read this in a manner that actually reflects Paul's situation instead of reading it today as a political point to be made? And this is where I think the danger of conflating Christianity and patriotism comes in is because when we conflate the two, we then read the Bible through the lens of patriotism instead of critique patriotism through the lens of Christianity. And that's well, if you're if you're asking it that way, then I, I, I think what Paul is saying is if you're living in these these countries and you are oppressed and you are, you know, this uh, religious and racial minority, then you should follow the laws because if you do, if you just go against the state, you could get you and all of your friends killed. The difference with that and the Christians of today is we are not a religious and racial minority as white right. Christians. We are the people that have, you know, generally speaking, the most power. So the obedience to the state is not something that Paul is saying to keep us alive. Right. Excellent. Any other thoughts? Anybody else have any insight into that or ideas? That was about an it? interesting observation, Andy. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I, I think Andy's spot on. Lee, did you have some? Yeah. Um, I mean, something I think is interesting in Paul saying that, and especially with what, uh, Andrew said is that at that time it was illegal to be Christians, right, or Jews, or you know, and to hold to their religious beliefs was to go against authority. So mm -hmm. how is like that seems contradictory to me? Yeah. So how would you read it? Yeah, I think that I, I would say that I think Andrew's basically spot on on this is that what what Paul's saying is because Paul's addressing primarily Roman citizens who have become Christian, not Jews that have become Christian. So most of the people Paul is addressing in this book of Romans is uh, is actually um, addressing uh Gentiles who now believe Jesus to be the Jewish Messiah, right? So, so when he's saying this is, he's basically, in my opinion, is saying, don't uh, unnecessarily rock the boat, right? 
and and I want to be very I want to put a, a fine point on the unnecessarily piece, right? Um, because there are things that we need to necessarily do to uh, address uh, the world, right? Address government, address whatever. Um, but I think that there is a piece to this that is important for us to recognize that Paul is saying, you know, you're in danger just by being associated with this group. And in your danger, you need to not go out of your way welcoming uh, these problems. So I think when we read it today, it's not a command to us to be subject to any one administration. Instead, it's an address to us that to be reminded that, uh, you know, uh, what is, you know, we, there's a long list, like being black while, jo while jogging, being black while grilling, being black while sleeping, being black while whatever, that those things that aren't even against the law, aren't even breaking the law, put uh, people in our culture and our world in in danger um, that are racial minorities or sexual minorities, uh, whatever it might be. Uh, just look at the trans community and the deaths that they often face for, for no reason at all. And so this is more along the lines of what Andrew was saying is that you're already at risk just by being associated. So you need to be careful. Um, and we should reject this as a notion that as the church, we are called to, um, to never uh, disagree with or never fight against or never oppose the government. Does that make sense? Thanks. You all, except for Wade currently, have your cameras off. It is so weird to just talk to a screen of frozen pictures and fonts of names, uh, especially when we're trying to have a conversation. It makes it complicated. So forgive me for struggling. Oh, look at that. I guilted all you people into turning on your cameras. I was doing it because I thought it would be distracting to see me smoking, but I will be more than happy to display myself. Well, it, it is. So as an aside, it actually is much easier to have a conversation when I can see people reacting, nodding their head or shaking their head or whatever to what's being said than to just kind of guess whether or not you're even in front of your camera. I mean, I have a question. It should be pretty encouraging that we all snapped our camera right on so you know that we were paying attention. That's right. I would, but I'm chasing a, a this guy around the house right now. Oh no, you're fine. That was not meant for everyone to. It was just that nobody had their camera on, and it was it was like, I, is anyone even here? Hey, yo, question. Yeah. So we are. We can say with confidence that Paul was addressing particularly Roman citizens in Rome. Primarily, the vast majority. Primarily. Vast majority. So I wonder what it might look like then to imagine Paul writing to American citizens who are participating in Black Lives Matter to yes. resist the oppression of white supremacy in this country. Yes. 
So, so how would you, how would you hear this, Chris, or how would you imagine uh, one would hear it? Pretend like you're a white person. How would you? Uh, no, I, I would never do that. <laughs> no, but. <laughs> but how would you imagine that this would be addressed to, because I think what we're talking about is predominantly white people involved in Black Lives Matter would be basically who the letter primarily would be written to. Interesting. Right, because it's people of power and people of privilege who now have in some way put themselves in alignment with a group of people that have been oppressed and now are standing up and fighting on behalf of them. They're being allies. And so how would I hear that? Right. And I think what it's saying is... Um, so in Toledo, and I know it's been around the country, but in Toledo, one of the big problems that happened during the protest is the, the people that were causing the biggest conflicts were white. And this is what I think Paul's addressing, saying, what the f are you doing? Don't do that. Right. Don't be an antagonizer during a peaceful protest towards the police officers, even if you're not doing something that's quote unquote outright violent, yelling, pointing, screaming, throwing things when right. these people are all united together in a common cause. And then you had to come in here all huge and right. Especially loud. since especially since the boot of empire always comes down on minorities. Of course. Even right. if you're, the, even if you are the one that starts it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I guess one question I have though is that, is this complicated further by the fact that Paul himself carries uh, an interesting identity or identities as a Roman cit or a citizen, right, of Rome, yep. as well as a a what I would argue a Pharisee or or a Jew. Right. Um, yep. How do we how do we nuance that then further? I mean, Paul is constantly trying to nuance all of those things, which is why he's so complicated to read. Yeah, and didn't finish, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, because we don't necessarily take the time to audit his audience or audit his own identity when he is speaking. And so because of that, um, and unfortunately in the, the US, we tend to read Paul as a white male addressing white people and giving white theology um and we couldn't be any further from the truth right um paul was just as quickly arrested beaten and everything even upon saying wait hands up don't shoot uh i'm a roman citizen and he was still beaten and it wasn't until they discovered that indeed he was a roman citizen that uh things changed tally did you have something no okay um, so I guess one think. thing that you could say, though, about Paul was that he was um, privileged in both right. contexts. Yes. Right. And Absolutely. so, you know, it's part of what he's saying about the government is saying those that have privilege in the eyes of the government use that. Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent. And, and that is so important for us to read when we read these or when someone says this to us, um, that we recognize that this is this is addressed to people of privilege. It's not addressed to people who are suffering under the thumb of Rome, right? Though we do have passages such as that in Jeremiah that talks about seek the peace and prosperity of the city, right? Like while you're, 
while you're oppressed, while you're in captivity, while you're here, um, do not allow the oppression to keep you from creating beauty in the midst of, of what you can control. Um, and so that would be more of uh, a discussion with those who are actually oppressed, where Rome or Romans, when Paul's saying it, is actually addressing people with privilege or more privilege, right? So is that, is that all making sense? And you're connecting that by saying, by rooting it, by rooting Paul in his proper first century historical context, correct? Yes. And, and that becomes very significant then for the way we read this, um, that as a privileged white male in the U.S., I should be living in such a manner as to not instigate uh, violence towards the very people that I'm, I'm identifying with. So like Black Lives Matter is a great example, or the queer community is a great example, right? That I should be living in a manner that doesn't create a problem for the people that I am attempting to be in allyship with. Um, and that's significant. Um, and I think anyone who has striven to be an ally can recognize the the fine line that you have to walk in order to not be a harm to the very people that you are trying to uh, establish allyship with. And I think the people that you're attempting to establish allyship are fearful that you're going to actually bring more harm than good. And so they're suspicious of you as they should be, because if you don't behave well within that setting, you're actually going to bring more injustice, not less. Is that all making sense? Yes. Thanks, Andrew. So, so then what, what is the role? Chris, did you have something? I saw your mic unmute for a second. Uh, I was just thinking to myself and wondering if, if this is a unique teaching to Paul, or if we could imagine that there were other Jewish leaders and figures in the first century who were teaching something very similar to this kind of new messianic movement at that time. Because this would have been a huge question, not just like for Paul to be addressing, right? But quite a few folks in that in that time. Yeah. Well, I see this is where I think it gets particularly complicated and nuanced, but fascinating to me at least, is that the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Sanhedrin within Judaism at that time would have been saying something very similar, but with completely different intentions. Right. Their thing would kind of be like, uh, if you don't want to get shot, don't break the law. Right. That would be That's interesting. Um, so their argument is obey Rome, follow Rome's laws. And if you don't, well, then it's on you if something goes wrong, because they themselves uh, at that time. And I'm not saying this in a disparaging way to Judaism, as all of you that know me well know. I wouldn't do that uh, in that setting, they were actually trying to maintain their power by being 
bedfellows with Rome as opposed to opposing Rome in the way that the subversive Jesus movement was really actively pursuing. And then, and now that Paul is participating in. So it's, what's fascinating to me is that the Sanhedrin or the Jewish leaders would have been saying that to the oppressed and Paul is saying this to the privileged. And it's a very fascinating thing. This is our problem when we don't understand the context of who is being written to, who is being addressed, is that we would say, well, it's being written to everyone. Well, no, the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, was literally written to the Romans, not to the, those in Corinth, not to those in Ephesus. Uh, it was literally written to the Christians in Rome that were predominantly Roman converts to this Jewish movement of Christianity. Is that helpful to kind of begin to piece together? Like, so when Spicer or Spicer, or I don't remember his name, that, that, that he quoted this passage, uh, Romans. Someone quoted this passage. It was like last Father's Day or something. Um, quoted this passage about that the church is responsible to be obedient to the government. So... So then what, now what is the role? Like we are all, I believe everyone that's on right now are all Americans. What is the role of faith and Americans in church? Right, and so my question would be though, would we not need to nuance that question to a particular audience as Paul did in the book of Romans. Excellent. Perfect question. So how do we nuance that? And what is our takeaway? That's spot on, Chris. Yeah. Uh, Chris, are you willing to repeat your question or would you like me to paraphrase it in my best attempt? Well, you had asked as Americans, what is what do we do today? What I'm saying is we would further need to uh, nuance the question because it would need to be curated towards particular audiences, right? So if Don asked me that question, as a black man, I will respond very differently as, as opposed to maybe how Andrew might respond. Yes. So then what about a setting like dust? What is the role? And Andrew, I know, you know, you just hopped in with us today. Um, but what, how would dust respond to this? Like, what is the role of American and patriotism in, in our community that has uh, some diversity of race, uh, some diversity of gender identity, some diversity of, uh, of sexual identity, right? Like what, how do we handle this? I mean, our community is made up of veterans. Our community is made up of uh, socialists. Our community is made up of 
veteran oh, socialists. What's that? <laughs> I said veteran socialists. Right. Um, and so we are, we have this conglomeration that exists in us that each one of us would give a very nuanced response to. But then what is the responsibility of our church and our community in, in expressing this? I, I, I'm not, I understand not being, um, you know, taking into context when things are written, but if for a moment you don't take context and you just think about the inception of our country without the context and the, the writings of the U.S. Constitution without context, I, I understand that's not always the right thing to do but just go with me here for a moment. I think that you can, um, you can take pride in the ideals that, that those founding fathers were striving for. I think that on paper, <laughs> literally, you know, it sounds good. So I think that there's some value in being able to, uh, Christian or not, you know, to be able to see that and go, that seems like a good idea for a country. And so as dust members, I think, you know, to be able to say, well, that doesn't conflict with anything in the Bible. Right. That stuff that was written all those 200 and something years ago. So, um, so that, that, that would be a good idea for a country. And so I can get behind that. I don't know. I know that's not super deep, but. Tally, I, I feel like part of what you're saying is, um, you know, to hold, to hold to the most generous reading of those ideals. And then, you know, I guess in terms of action, you know, is to say, um, you know, to, uh, you know, to, to kind of advocate for and fight for that generous reading of those so that when it says all men, you mean all humankind, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. you know, et cetera, you know, and so, right, it, you know, when you say take it out of context, um, you know, take it to the, um, take it to the logical extreme, <laughs> almost, um, right. which may not have been the literalist meaning that the that the that the writers had, but to look to those as ideals in our context to say, well, um, I think it was Lee that talked about, um, or maybe it was you, Tally, that was talking about, well, what of what of empire, um, you know, what if government can be um governing but not um but not empire you know right. what if the government is providing for the needs of the people i know uh, it's idealistic right yeah i have a few a few comments here right one uh don i appreciate the framing of the question because it puts us in the posture of collective movement and not individual what can i do which is extremely important how does dust respond as a community? Not how do you respond individually, which is important to talk about, but as a community, how do we respond? I really appreciate that and value that. The second thing I would say, uh, Tally, and what you're talking about 
um, I'm reminded that this is oftentimes what um, black power and civil rights leaders did was keep accountable the U.S. to its own words in its own constitutions. You can you can watch still videos of Dr. King say, I heard it was written, all men are created equal. And this is about keeping the moral consciousness of the U.S. accountable to its own virtues and ideals. The second thing I would say, or I'm sorry, the third thing I would say is I'm reminded of um, Abraham Heschel and this idea that words create worlds. And um, I think when we keep empire accountable to its own words to serve the most privileged and affluent, to then have it also elevate the most vulnerable and marginalized, then I think we start to see justice. Then I think we start to see equity. Yeah, absolutely. So then, Chris, I, go, go ahead. Who is talking? Oh, Andrew, uh, yeah, I have a question. Yeah, go for it. In, in your view, how um, should it be a priority for us as followers of Jesus to make our government more like Jesus? And if so, how much of our energy should we be putting into that? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question, right? So my opinion, um, I'm assuming you were asking me that, Andrew, um, and other people are welcome to give their yes. views as well, is that, you know, for me, I don't believe that we should, uh, I think voting our morals into office as the solution to unhealthy behavior is short-sighted. Right. So to make our, our government more like Jesus, it's kind of like government in and of itself is not uh, a human. Uh, it can't have morals. Um, now, it can have ideals. And, um, and so this is, this is really important for us, right? So I think that our job is to subvert the way our government functions by taking uh, this way of living and functioning and treating other humans and making it the norm as best we can. And that through that, the people that rise up into positions of power in our country should have risen up through that ideal, through those that lens, through that, uh, that culture and the church instead has decided to shortcut it. It reminds me a little bit of Jesus in the wilderness fasting and the Satan uh, is tempting Jesus to take shortcuts to declaring Jesus to be Messiah, right? Like if you do these three things then the world will recognize you as the Messiah. And Jesus recognizes that the impact of that would be less than... A, a slow build of people coming in under these ideals and and it would it might be a government uh, victory for Rome to see this person in some miraculous way be considered the Jewish Messiah but it wouldn't change the world it would just change the, the power structure in the world and so I think the same thing's true for us is that the more that we impact our circle of influence with, uh, with the ideals of Christianity, with the uh, morality that goes with uh, being professors of faithfulness, 
that that then transforms those people around us and then those people transform and then those people transform and it's a snowball effect that in what would potentially happen would be that all the people that would rise through rise to power or authority would come up through those means and then our government would be transformed but not because we made a conscientious decision to transform our government, but because we made a conscientious decision to love our neighbor. And I think that that, but that takes a long time. And so we'd rather take the shortcut and vote our morals into office and force other people to obey our moral code than to actually live out the moral code in such an impactful way that people adapt it or adopt it. Uh, because it's compelling. Is that, that feels very long-winded and I hope it made sense. Does anyone else have any thoughts about that? I didn't think that was too long-winded. I thought that was a really good explanation and answer and kind of what I was thinking, so. Awesome. I think this is why people become one issue voters, right? Is that they're trying to take a shortcut to get one of their moral code pieces into uh, legislation uh, in order to achieve this one morality piece that they perceive to be godly. Um, and so they're willing to sacrifice a ton of other things that for them isn't part of their moral uh, wrestling. And so they're willing to vote something in because that's the most important piece uh, and they'll dismiss the other things or they just don't notice the other things because it's not part of their uh, experience. I, I have a lot of feelings on all that that you just said because I feel like they missed the forest for the trees, sure. you know, that, um, but then also it's, it, uh, it's easy to try to legislate something that it doesn't really affect you anyway. So like if somebody decides, well, I'm not gonna have abortion, nobody should have abortions, that should be a law. Well, it doesn't even affect you. Once you start having to uh, make legislation that actually would affect you, it gets a lot harder. Absolutely, especially things that would affect you negatively, yeah. In your pocketbook? Yep. Absolutely. So it's easier to say, I'm a Christian because of this, and everybody should do this, and that one thing, and if we just do that, then everything's good, and then you're leaving out a whole bunch of other stuff that actually would require work on your part. Yeah, I think that if Christianity, and most of you have heard me say this before, if Christianity truly wanted to end or reduce abortions in the U.S., they would invest a lot more money into adoption agencies and services that provide for uh, women uh, who are financially in danger of, with food insecurity, housing, and all this stuff that pregnancy and loss of job could uh, negatively impact the entire household. And if we truly were concerned about abortion, we would be, we would be investing a ton of money, energy, and resources into support systems for families that have to make this difficult decision at times. Um, and instead, we would rather just legislate it and, and not actually invest. Um, and that's, 
that's the complicated part because I'd say, well, then is that so deeply, truly um, your stance or is it, uh, you know, I, I refer to this also. I walk into a church and I say, how many of you think that we should, we should take care of the poor? And, you know, you get 100% of hands risen, right? But then you say, how many of you yourself are caring for the poor? And, like, nobody's hands up. And it's because they would rather, like, we, we want the church to handle taking care of the poor. So I give to the church so the church can care for the poor. But then that alleviates me from having to actually care for the poor myself as well. Right. But what impacts that thinking? What is the root, right? in the tree that impacts that thinking because I would press on the idea that there is no shared understanding of Christian ideals. Right. Um, And I think some of the examples that have been shared so far kind of tease that out. So my question would be then um, if there is not a shared set of Christian ideals, or even if these ideals appear to be at competing odds, what is the what what is the actual problem then? This seems to be more systemic. This seems to be more institutionalized than an individual Christian here in this church or an individual Christian here in this church. I have ideas. One is discipleship, but I wanted to pose that to the group. I think it's a great question. What do you guys think? I was so fixated on the first sentence you said, Chris, that I missed sort of the question. The, the question so basically- I know you said there, are, there is no um, fixed set of Christian ideals. I, I okay. think the, the question is um, that the problem seems to be systemic in the church, not, not individual. And so what is the system and what is the way that we address or fix that? So wait, what is it that we need to fix? Not that we all have the same set of ideals, right? Well, that we have a shared, we have a shared understanding of the world. Uh, I'll I'll let Chris, if you want to articulate that. I'm sorry, Tally, what is the the direct question? I'm trying to understand what the question is or the problem to be solved. Because you started out by saying we don't have a fixed set of Christian ideals, which I agree with. Um, but I don't understand then what the problem is that need to be solved. Do we all, as, um, as the church, big C, everybody, every Christian, need to have the same set of ideals? So, so what's the question? Yeah, sure. Um, my question is just if, uh, if Christians are having a diversity of understanding about the text, which of course I welcome, right? I do think, however, there are, are fundamental uh, virtues or principles that we find in Torah that would be um, important to, to together share in as we express our diversity and nuance and how we understand those traditions, right? So I think about justice. I think about, I think Wade just talked about adding the corners of the field to like, what is it? To the bingo card set. But like, that is, that's my question. What does the corner of the field look like for Christians, even though we all agree, sort of allocating a, a piece of your corner of your field is good to do. How do we do that? And how do we get other people to understand that even opening up 
some of that land and some of that space for other is important. Thank you. And he suggested discipleship as being one of those pieces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I think, I think that discipleship or the seminary, for example, or pulpit space, I think that's what, if we really want to get to the root, I think that's where we need to start going. And I think the more we do that, this idea of giving folks the benefit of the doubt will become more alive and more experienced because you'll start to see if I'm not saying those have not seen it already, but you'll start to see like the insidious systemic nature of this, these kinds of teachings that have infiltrated the church, infiltrated seminaries to where we're all walking around saying Jesus is white. When we think about the gospel, we're thinking about one thing only. And when we think about salvation, we're thinking about a personal salvation. I would argue that uh, in the Torah and in Judaism, this is not what we find. And I'm, I'm wondering how we have gotten so far disconnected from the roots of the faith to where even some of these just kind of basic human values have gotten lost. Yeah. Anybody have any thoughts? I would say there's a lot of tension. I like to believe that, um, that people are good. And I know that we're not taught that a lot in church, that people we're taught that, you know, the sinful nature is what is most dominant as humans and human, human nature would be a sinful nature. Um, and I like to think that that's not true. I like to think that people want to do good and want to see good and want to see good in others. So that's not, this isn't my normal stance. What I'm about to say is what I'm getting at, Chris. But I feel like um, it's a, it's a, it, there, there is a human uh, desire need to look out for yourself and your own. And I think that a, a lot of times that, you know, the, how we've gotten away from it is uh, human desire to take care of our, ourselves and our, to take care of, you know, me and mine. Um, and so unfortunately that gets abused when it happens generation after generation of people in power. Um, I, I don't disagree that discipleship, you know, it's interesting because I think sometimes we, like, we're at a church like Dust. Well, I mean, that's the church we're at. <laughs> not like, hey, actually, I'm at dust. Um, and we hear a lot of the same things uh, over and over. Uh, that's how Wade can say something like to give a very dusty answer, you know, because we know what's what it might be. There's like, you know, a handful of things he might say that would fit into the narrative of what's common to hear for us at dust. Um, but I think that that's important. I think that there's a lot of value in continuing to go back to what's important. And I appreciate that from Don. Um, I think sometimes, it, which is the corners of the field, which is, um, you know, loving our neighbor. Like to, 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 keep, to keep distilling it down to what's most important. And we keep doing that and we keep coming back to it and we keep doing that and we keep coming back to it. And I think there's, that's good because if we can do that, then we're not going to be able to shake it. We're not going to be able to get it out of our heads. And if we can't get it out of our heads, then hopefully we can't get it off our lips. If we can't get it off our lips, then we'll talk to other people about it. Yeah. 
Thank you. Anybody else? So Chris, I think you know my my thought, my answer is absolutely discipleship, right? The church has really just given lip service to discipleship all these years and turned it into a, as I often say, a, a Tuesday night study for six weeks and then declared discipleship to be completed. And you know, the importance of discipleship is as I try to frame it, is not to make everyone in agreement with me but to help people to be able to understand why they believe what they believe. I don't think most Christians, unfortunately, can articulate why they believe the things they believe beyond saying, well, that's what I was just always taught, or that's what the Bible clearly says. Um, and I say clearly somewhat facetiously, right? Um, because very few people are reading it in its original language. They're reading it in their preferred translation slash interpretation. So I think that there's, for me, I think the system of the church has depended too much on, and this is the great irony, in my opinion, has, has depended too much on the cultural assumption that the United States is a Christian nation. And so it has allowed culture to shape or government or politics to shape uh, its Christian understanding. The irony of that is, is that when uh, people that are labeled more progressive or what have you say that we should include more people or more vo more people's voices should be welcomed at the table, the Christian response has all of a sudden become, you're too influenced by the culture. But I think, I think that up until very recently, and, and even including recently, the church has been so convinced that we're a Christian nation that it's allowed the general perception of the privileged and powerful of our country to dictate the understanding that we have of God, faith, and scripture. And that's a real danger, especially since that is a clearly corrupted contextual switch to what was going on uh, when the when the text was written and who it was written by. So I think it's I think discipleship really at the end of the day becomes the the thing that undermines uh, white theology that undermines the per, uh, the prevalent uh, or the prevailing ideas of this conflation of patriotism and Christianity, that they're one in the same, and that if you truly love God, you'll love your country, or if you truly love your country, you'll love God. Either of those directions is really a complicated thing uh, and leaves us in a situation in which it demands, and this is a brilliant move by empire, and it's what Constantine did, right, is that the more the government takes on the notion that it's Christian, guess what it can't be done to it it can't be critiqued because it becomes an authority it becomes the most powerful entity or expression of the faith and then it doesn't leave room for people to critique it and to say it's unhealthy or it's imbalanced or it's not uh it's not providing equity um and so the importance of the church is that we keep we create the balance, we create the checks and balance for the government that we say, no, as the church, 
we have these critiques of the way the government's behaving. We have these critiques of the way that society is assuming is healthy. And we become, we need to keep that, enough of that separation that we can both affirm and love the veterans in our midst and the current soldiers in our midst. And we can love and care for people who work in government in our midst, while at the same time being willing to critique them. David, do you remember when you asked me to be a part of your prayer team? And I said, I said, I will be part of your prayer team, but I won't pray that you win. <laughs> like it was yesterday. Yeah. And I just said, I said, I'll pray that the right person is elected, but I won't <laughs> pray that you win. <laughs> I remember very and, well. And I think that that's a really important picture, right? I think that that's how we should be. Um, that that the right person fit for the position is the one who wins and uh, that we shouldn't be uh, pitting our, like, it's like praying for your football team to win the game. What a silly idea, right? Um, and we need to wrestle with that. And what does that mean as the church to pray for the government? What does it mean for the church to pray for our politicians? It's not pray for their victory. It's pray that we have lived and we have functioned and we have cultivated a world in which uh, the people that have the best interests in mind of all people are the ones that represent the people to making laws and making decisions about the well-being of the folks. Yeah, David. And we need to wrap up around late. Yeah, yeah I, I just, I think this is part of the difficulty I'm having with the it's just in my mind it's causing a lot of uh thoughts about you know we it's it's this either or type of situation and I feel like you know we're we're given just two options so only one can be quote-unquote right or only one can you know be in the role of leadership and so it just it it's it's complex for me obviously you know being part of that process in the past and and in many ways still i think you know both uh both choices are horrible um and i you know i don't want to be the lesser of two evils <laughs> but i also you know egotistically probably or or also just in the belief that that I might be the better choice, I think, you know, mm -hmm. what if I can make some kind of difference that's positive and mm -hmm. yeah, I, it, these are all just kind of bubbling up in my head, but I think it seems to apply certainly in government that basic, based on the elected process, you know, we end up having to choose. Um, and I, you know, when you said you were just first considering you know, to actually vote, I thought, man, that's got to be tough to come from, you know, a position of not ever wanting to choose between two evils and then feeling compelled then to make a choice. Yep. I, it's, uh, you know, it's a difficult thing to struggle with if we really truly think about it. Well, and I think this is where the church has done a great disservice is that we've 
we've really bought into this concept that of path of least resistance, right? In so many ways that we've made Christianity so simple that you can fit it on a bumper sticker. We've made, uh, you know, discussions of salvation and faith about saying a prayer, a single prayer. We've, we've done so much to oversimplify the extraordinarily complicated and nuanced uh, expression of faith's uh, subversiveness and um, critique. And like, I hope that when people walk away from dust, they realize this is way more complicated than I ever thought it was. And that it's, that it also then means that because it's way more complicated than you ever thought it was, that as you invest in it, it also becomes way more meaningful than it ever was in the past. It's way more impactful in every aspect of your life. It's way more impactful in every thought and every decision that you make that all of that nuance, all of that complication now becomes so much that I begin to understand why it says the prophet's bones began to burst because of how, how deeply this becomes a part of who I am in the complication. Whereas the simplicity, I can then just live with a, with a Christian t-shirt with a slogan on it and be content. I, I'm not there anymore. I can't be content by having a fish symbol on the back of my car and that being enough um instead i have to wrestle with what does it mean to have a military what does it mean to discuss empire what does it mean to love my neighbor what does it mean to uh care for the economy but also care for humanity what does it mean for me to the list goes on and on and there's not a single aspect of our life no matter how simple or small it is that shouldn't be theologically dripping right that every thought, everything that we would have thought before that kind of separated out from a theological expression has to actually be a theological expression. The Torah is so, uh, gets into such minutia because God imagined that the world would function best if everything was wrestled with theologically. And I agree, um, but that's not easy. And it's not simple and it's not a slogan, um, which is why today's discussion, even though we don't necessarily come to any conclusion, it really is important for us to have to say, what is the problem with having the American flag draped over the cross? What is the problem with uh, loving our country? Is there a problem with those things? Um, and how do those things compete or conflict with what we profess about faith and understanding of God? And my hope today isn't that I that we solve those problems. My hope today is that we open the door for more intricate questions, better questions that we can ask uh, throughout the year as we wrestle with this. And what is the role that the United States plays in my understanding of God and faith? And what is the understanding of the United States through my view of God and faith and how do we, we reconcile those things or do we reconcile them? And what is the meaning then of how we live? So uh, any last thoughts from anyone? Because if not, I'm going to pray and we'll do prayer requests. We are running a bit late. Any last minute thoughts? 
All right. Well, let me pray over us. Uh, Lord, you are so good, and I am grateful for the challenge that your text constantly creates in, in me. Uh, Lord, may I always be challenged when I turn to the text. May I always be challenged when I try to uh, go further into my faith and my understanding of the pursuit of you. Lord, I thank you for uh, these people that I get the opportunity to wrestle with these ideas with, that I get to have conversations with about this. Lord, may we be a church that uh, is willing to critique the nation we live in because we love the nation we live in. May we be a people that are willing to critique uh, the systems that are oppressive because we think that systems could be about freedom. May we be a people that continue to strive for allyship in areas where we are not members, but instead will desire to stand for, stand with, and may we not be antagonists in those space, but instead be comforters and uh, sharers of the burden. Lord, I love you. I praise you. I give you all the glory. Amen.